At Revelation chapter 3 is where we are. Revelation chapter 3. Don't worry, Brother Dave, I've tried to forget my son-in-laws on occasion too. <laughs> uh, I've told you about the time we were, our family was up singing at some church somewhere and they wanted me to introduce everybody and I introduced and I talked, I said, this is Elizabeth. And I turned around and said, this is my daughter Elizabeth. And <laughs> I had a Biden moment. That, that's what you call it, a Biden moment. <laughs> Revelation chapter 3, are we all there? All right, let's pray. Father, good to be in church tonight. It's good to enjoy the fellowship of the saints and fellowship with Thee. Good to sing these songs. Uh, Lord, we uh, appreciate every song we sung tonight. What a blessing. Ministered to our hearts. Lord, I pray now that you'd bless the time of preaching. And the Father's brother John so aptly prayed that we don't need to hear from me, hide me behind the cross, get me out of the scene, but we want you to minister to us. We want to hear from heaven. I want to hear from heaven. So, Spirit of God, please, from the pulpit to the pew, please minister to us tonight. And um, bless your people. Lord, I am just a piece of dirt standing up here, but a dirt piece of dirt that can be filled with your spirit and your power and your passion, your words, your wisdom. And uh, Lord, uh, you could speak to us. So minister to your people tonight, Father. We all have needs. We need help. We live in a mess. Pray, Father, that you would Give us something tonight to edify us, strengthen us, encourage us, whatever it may be. But thank you, Holy Spirit of God, for being here with us tonight and for ministering to us. Well, thank you in Christ's name. Amen. All right, Revelation chapter 3. My wife, by the way, says hello. Uh, Elizabeth has not had the baby yet, and the plan is to be induced. She'll be going in the hospital at 5.30 tomorrow morning. So far, that's the case. But there's also... A major outbreak of the COVID in that area, and so if the hospitals are too crowded, they may say, just stay home, to which Elizabeth said she will cry if she hears them say that. So uh, just pray she can get in the hospital and have this child, or maybe even get in tonight. They may be heading over there now. Who knows? But uh, hopefully, every, pray, prayerfully, everything will go well, And uh, but you might want to keep them in your prayers also. Re Revelation chapter 3, we were in the dealing with the church at Thyatira. And the church at Thyatira is one of those go-along-to-get-along kind of churches. They've compromised in all the areas that uh, they shouldn't have. And as a result, they are hearing some things from the Lord. And in Revelation chapter 3, and we finished there last week, he, he says to them, Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard. Hold fast and repent, if thou... Uh, if therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come unto thee, come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I shall come upon thee. And he, we talked about the historical uh, reference there. Uh, we know that at Thyatira, it was one of those cities where it was impregnable, that uh, supposedly the fortress was, not the city, but the fortress was impregnable. And uh, yet the uh, Persians figured out how to get in there. And did I not turn this off? I'm sorry, Sardis, thank you, thank you. 
Yeah, there was Sardis too, and that was a... <laughs> All right, start the tape over. Um, yeah, Sardis. Sardis is the church that we're, that we're dealing with, and uh, it, it was a fortress was very basically impregnable, and yet the Persians again figured out how to take that city, and uh, then the Greeks did the same thing. They didn't learn from the first time. And just to say to the people in Sardis, uh, just to say, remember, or I'm going to come upon you like a thief in the night. You won't even know when I come if you're not watching. Because that's what they didn't do. They, they, they thought they stood, and they didn't. And uh, uh, practically, to you and I as Christians, we need to remember that the Bible says, let, let him take heed. He that thinketh he standeth, let him take heed lest he fall. And um, uh, our, our responsibility is always to be watching, watching ourselves, watching what's around us, and so on and so forth. Um, spiritually, the simplicity of salvation based on the truth of the Scripture uh, is what they also needed to watch. Uh, Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, you can turn there if you'd like, but Acts chapter 20 and verse 31, Paul gives the same uh, reminder to the church at Ephesus. In Acts 20 and verse 31, he says, Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul said, I spent three years of my life in ministry uh, here at the church at Ephesus. And every time we got together, we had daytime meetings, we had evening meetings. Every time we got together, he said, I taught you everything I know everything I could think of, I've taught you. And in the process of that teaching, I warned you. I have warned you about uh, the troubles that could come upon a Christian. I warned you about the flesh. I've warned you about the devil. I've warned you about the world system. I've warned you about all that stuff. I've warned you that there'll be wolves from without that try to attack the flock. I've warned you that there'll be wolves from within the flock that try to attack the, the flock. And he says, so watch and remember. And again, that's the responsibility of every church, of every Christian, watch and remember. In, uh, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 3, it says, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard. So the problem was that they started right. And I would say every, every New Testament church starts right. Uh, every church, uh, uh, they, they, they love the simplicity of the gospel, especially if you've got uh, new believers coming into the church, if it's a church plant and people are uh, leading other people to Christ and they're coming in and they're, uh, they're enjoying what it means to be saved. I mean, there's nothing like the, the, uh, the excitement and the enjoyment and the zeal uh, of new believers. They're, you know, they, uh, uh, they have uh, a little bit of fanaticism. They have zeal without knowledge. They have to learn some things, what have you, but just the excitement. And uh, to, to sing a song about how Jesus saves and, and you watch them stand there in tears. I've seen that. New believers really appreciating Jesus Christ. And then as they get more older and they get, they get uh, uh, I don't know what it is, but uh, that seems to go away. And Paul is trying to say here, look, you need to think back. Remember the simplicity of the gospel because things are being thrown in, things are being added in, and especially with the go-along, get-along kind of mentality, you know, anything goes, what have you. And after a while, you have this monstrosity that you're calling church but it's not, you've lost the simplicity of the gospel. And Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, and he's dealing with the Galatians, uh, they were also being attacked by uh, a group of people we would refer to as Judaizers. They were a group of people who said, you have to add this to your faith. And for them, it was circumcision. But, but anybody that says you have to add something to your faith, we would classify as a Judaizer. 
because Judaizers added stuff to their faith. And um, Paul says, Galatians, he said, Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Interesting word there, bewitched. We know the, what that's all about. Uh, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently sent forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you. And he's going to ask them a question. And he said, here, you, you folks have a problem. You're getting into this stuff, this, uh, this uh, circumcision, and trying to perfect yourself with the flesh. He says, I got a question for you. Receive you the Spirit by the works of the law, by the hearing of faith. Remember how you received it. Think back on how you received Jesus Christ. You didn't do that in a baptismal pool. You didn't do that by getting circumcised. You did that by faith. That's how you received Christ. Then he asked him the second question. Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are you now made perfect by the flesh? He says, this is, this is ridiculous. You started out in the simplicity of the gospel. Christ died on the cross for your sins, was buried, rose again the third day from the dead. You trusted him. He saved you. And now all of a sudden you're starting to add some stuff to it. Wait a minute, where did that come from? He said, you started right, and now you're going to perfect yourself with the flesh? But that is the problem. That, is, that seems to be a human tendency to go that direction. Colossians chapter 2, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 6, he says, As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ? I trusted Jesus Christ to be my Savior. I knew I was a sinner. I knew I was on my way to hell. I knew I couldn't save myself by good works or good deeds or self-righteousness or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, and I, I heard about Jesus. I heard how he died on the cross for me, how he rose again from the dead, how he shed his blood to cleanse me of my sins. And I trusted Christ by faith. I trusted Christ as my Savior. All right, that's how you received him. And you walk with him the same way. You received him by faith. You walk with him by faith. That's the simplicity of the gospel. Philippians chapter 4. John is trying to get these people at Sardis to say, hey, remember how it started. Remember what you were, you were told, what you heard. Paul in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9 says to the church at Philippi, he said, in case you kind of get confused here, he said, those things which you have both learned and received and heard, and seen in me, do. Paul said, if you ever get uh, uh, barraged by a bunch of nonsense, he said, look at my life. My life is a living example of how this thing is supposed to be done. Paul was a sinner. Paul made his mistakes. We get that. But Paul could say, I'm living my life in the simplicity of the gospel, I'm living my life trusting Jesus Christ. I'm walking by faith. I'm not adding a bunch of stuff to it. He said, this is the way. You've, you've learned it. I've taught you that. Uh, you've received what I've taught you. You've heard me say it. You've seen it in me. That's how we do it. So the church at Sardis started out right, but for some reason they went the way of, of a lot of flesh and decided they had to add stuff to it. They had to get along with this crowd. Well, maybe that doctrine's not that important. It'll keep us from getting in trouble, and let's just all go along and get along, and that kind of stuff right there. So it went from good to bad. Now, prophetically, again, this church started out in purity and in truth, but as the centuries went by, it became a dead, heretical corpse. So what do you think of the Catholic Church in the Middle Ages, preacher? A dead, heretical corpse is what it is. And, uh, you know, we've gone through the history of this thing. 
Uh, they were in the, before the fourth century. The Christians were being persecuted. They're dealing with heretics. There are heretics out there. There are people that are corrupting the word of God. There are people that are writing books and putting Paul's name on it and Peter's name on it and what have you. Uh, they're dealing with a bunch of junk, but the persecution is the biggest thing. And then Constantine shows up, legalizes Christianity, and they didn't know how to handle that. These are people that were living in the catacombs in Rome, hiding from persecution. These are people who were having worship services in the woods and in the hills and all that. And now all of a sudden, uh, Rome says, you're legal. In fact, you're so legal, Constantine said, I'm going to give you these basilicas here that the pagans used and government used, these great structures. We'll give you those. You can make churches out of them. We'll give you gold. We'll give you silver. We'll give you the beautiful vestments you can wear. And we'll give you a marble pulpit to stand behind and, and preach and what have you. And uh, that, just, that, that, just, that just made it go bad. You must think that some of these Christians might have thought we're in the kingdom. The kingdom has come. We're legal. We've got all the stuff. We've been given this money. Look at all the stuff. And yet there were those still around that said, wait a minute, this, this, doesn't, this doesn't seem right. Something isn't right about this. Because they're watching the church getting these big buildings for services, and then they're watching the pagans go right in with them. And the pagans are continuing to worship the way they worship, and the Christians are worshiping the way they worship. And they said, we've got we to figure out how to work this out. You know. Well, I'll tell you what, just they, they worship you know, gods. Let's just turn their gods into saints. You can put a Christian name on it. Everybody will be happy. And that's the way they did it. And there were those in the church that said, wait a minute, this isn't right. And they got out of that mess. And they had to run. Talked about Sunday morning about the Waldensians. They had to leave. They fled to the north of Rome into the Alpine Valley or the Alps. You go farther into southern France, you've got the Albigenses. You've got uh, other groups that are uh, pockets of these Bible believers all over Europe from England right on over. You've got Patrick preaching in England and leading people to Christ and sending missionaries from, uh, from uh, England. And, and uh, you've got Columba and you've got others that are leaving England and going to Europe as missionaries and starting churches and, and stuff like that. And they are hated by the Roman Catholics. And so you have those people that are there. But most of the, most of the church is, is gone bad. That's what Sardis represents, a dead, uh, it's a church in name. He said when you started out, you, you have a name that you're living, but you're dead. You're dead. Um, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4 tells us that. He said, there are a few names even in Sardis which have not defiled their garments. So prophetically, historically, uh, in church history, there will be those uh, lights that begin to glimmer uh, amid all of this nonsense. Uh, in fact, uh, in the Reformation, one of the, the, the plea of the Reformation, I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but the plea of the Reformation is what they call the five solas. Uh, the five solas were basically, the, the Reformation, those in the Reformation saw this stuff going on and said, look, here's what we need to do. We have, need to have sola scriptura, which means the Bible alone, scripture alone. Sola means alone. Uh, sola fida. Faith alone, sola gratia, grace alone, solus Christus or solo Christo, Christ alone or through Christ alone, and soli dea gloria, the glory to, glory to God alone. 
And the reformer said, that's what we need to get back to. That's what we're missing. We've got all this junk, all this stuff has crept in, all this stuff has been added. Let's just get back to the Bible. Which was difficult in those days because the only people that had Scripture were the priests. Uh, So that was kind of tough, but that was the idea. Let's get back to what the Bible teaches. Let's get back to grace, the grace of God saving people, uh, not your self-righteousness. Let's get back to faith alone, not faith in good works and baptism and circumcision and all that stuff. Uh, And let's get back to Christ alone, not Christ and Mary and not Christ and and Joe Smith and not Christ and whatever else you want to add to it. And that's... That was the, the core belief of the Reformation. It's interesting that um, I'd, I had learned that in, in church history in the past. I uh, hadn't dwelled on it or anything like that. But I know this. There were, there were times preaching on the street, if you're preaching to a religious crowd. Now, a lot of times you preach on the street. A lot of guys like to pick a bar, preach across the street from a bar because the targets are so easy. I mean, you know what they're doing in there. You know what their thought process is. Uh, but sometimes you go into a city and you're preaching in the downtown area of a city, and you've got a lot of religious people. These aren't the drug dealers and what have you. These are the businessmen. These are the, uh, the uh, money makers, the movers, the shakers, and what have you. Uh, the people that go to church every Sunday somewhere. And that's a, that's a tougher crowd to preach to than to preach to the drunks and the dope heads and the drug addicts and all that stuff. But I remember a number of occasions preaching and probably out of frustration, seeing all this religion. And so I would preach, you know, it's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the Word of God alone. Now, I didn't realize it, but what I had just said there were four of those five solas. And I never did to the glory of God alone, but uh, it's Christ alone, uh, it's, it's, it's grace alone, uh, by faith alone, in Christ alone, based on the Word of God alone. And that's the message that the religious world needs, needs to hear because they think it's works and they think it's good deeds and they think it's ritual and what have you. Um, so that was the cry of the Reformation. So there are some, historically and prophetically, there are some lights shining toward the end of the Middle Ages. We're talking 1200, 1300, 1400 BC, 1500, I'm sorry, AD. <clears throat> so... That's what's going on. And he said this, hold fast and repent. He said there's some good stuff there. There, You have some people there that are doing some good stuff. Hold fast and repent. Uh, Thyatira was told to hold fast till I come. Pergamos uh, said thou holdest fast, fast my name. So for the church, and I looked that phrase up, hold fast, it only shows up twice in the New Testament. And it shows up in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 21, where it says, Prove all things, hold fast to that which is good. So we're to hold fast to what is good after we've proven it to be good. Prove all things. Uh, now, how do you do that? How do you prove all things? What's the process of proving all things? Well, I'm going to use the Bible, but I'm going to have to pass judgment on stuff based on what the Scripture says, to prove whether it's right or wrong. You know, so I'm going to judge. Judge not lest you be judged. It has nothing to do with that. I'm going to judge something to be able to prove it, prove all things. And when I prove it to be good, I'm going to hang on to it. When I prove it to be false, I jettison it. I don't want it. But when I 
Find the things that are good. I hold on to those. That's one thing. Second Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13 says this, Hold fast the form of sound words, which thou hast heard of me in faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. Paul said, I'm giving you some good teaching. Hang on to it. Hang on to it. So for the church, we just need to figure out in this life what's good and what isn't good and hold on to that which is good. And we need to figure out what good sound words are. Well, if you're you know, listening to somebody preaching the Bible to you, you're probably getting some good sound words. If you're listening to somebody every Sunday morning giving you psychology, you're not getting good sound words. If you're listening to somebody advocating philosophy, you're not getting good sound words. So figure out, you know, it's, it's the Scripture. You're going to get good sound words, sound doctrine, is what Paul said four times in the pastoral epistles. Sound doctrine. Those are sound words. So hold fast to these two things. Hold fast to good Bible words, good Bible doctrine, good Bible teaching, and figure out what's good in this life based on Scripture and hold on to that too. That's what's given to the church. Now, I don't think that's what he's saying to the church at Sardis. I don't think that's the light that he's trying to say to them. Remember where they are doctrinally. Historically, it's a church that existed at the time of John. Prophetically, it represents the last period of the Middle Ages. Doctrinally, it represents a church that's actually in existence in the tribulation time. And he says to them, hold fast. Okay? What's he talking about? Well, Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 will give you an idea. Because there's a lot... In Hebrews chapter 3, it is for the people living during the tribulation time. You know, it's interesting. You can buy these books, all these books, you know, 100 100 verses on how you can lose your salvation. And I guarantee you they either go to the Old Testament or they go to Matthew or they go to Hebrews. Because in Matthew, you've got Jesus preaching to the Jews primarily. In Hebrews... You've got a ministry to the Jews, a writing to the Jews. So how do you know? Who is it addressed to? And so in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 6, it says, But as Christ is as a son over his own house, whose house ye are, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. So Hebrews has the end in sight. Uh, Matthew 24, another Verse on, you know, proving you can lose your salvation. Matthew 24 and verse 13. But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. That's not to us. I don't have to endure unto the end. I'm sealed unto the day of redemption. Who's he talking to? People living during the tribulation. Save Jews, save Gentiles that are living during the tribulation. And he says, you're going to have to endure these seven years, or less than seven years. You're going to have to endure this time. You're going to have to go through this stuff all the way to the end. Because if you don't, if you don't hold fast and what have you, and you take the mark of the beast, you're damned. So in, his, in the statement there to the church at Sardis, I believe the holding fast there is, hey, uh, hold fast because the end is coming. Hold fast. If you've got the truth, hold on to that. Uh, Hebrews 4 and verse 14 talks about holding fast our profession. Hebrews 10 and verse 23 also, hold fast the profession of our faith. He says, hang on to being a Christian. Hold fast to being a Christian. 
And during the tribulation, there's no way you're going to hide it. You either are a Christian and it's known you're a Christian or you're not. So how would they know? If you don't have a mark here and you don't have a mark here, it's pretty obvious what you are. And Paul says, hold on and just maintain it. You're not going to hide it. Just maintain your profession. I am a Christian. So what's the big deal about that? I can do that. Well, they're not chopping people's heads off when you do that. Not yet anyway. Not here anyway. But in the tribulation time, they're, they're chopping heads off. And so for you to say, I'm a Christian, may mean going to a guillotine and having your head chopped off. That's why Paul says, just hang on to it. Not your head, but hang on to your profession. Hang on to your profession. Uh, even if it means getting your head chopped off. Oh, man, what happens if my head gets chopped off? What happens if your head gets chopped off? <laughs> Where are you going to be? So really, it's just the fear you're dealing with. The results of getting your head chopped off are glorious. It's the process of having that done that is uh, something we wouldn't look forward to. But that's basically what Paul's saying. Look, you know, if you have to be killed, whatever, you're going to heaven if you hang on and don't take the mark of the beast. Now, uh, Revelation chapter 3, verse 3, he says, Therefore, if thou wilt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. So again, historically, the reference to the city being conquered by the Persians and the Greeks. Uh, doctrinally, he says to these people, you better watch. Doctrinally, this is a reference again to the tribulation, and there is a rapture at the end of the tribulation. There's a rapture. Our rapture is before the tribulation. At the end of the tribulation, there is another rapture. Say, so how do you know? You've got 144,000 Jews that are called to preach in Revelation chapter 7. They don't show up again until Revelation chapter 14, and when they show up in Revelation chapter 14, where are they? They're in Zion, the Zion. They've already been caught up, and there are a bunch of Gentiles caught up with them. So there is a rapture at the end of the tribulation. Um, and this, you know, if you have a hard time figuring out what's this, what are these ten virgins in Matthew 25? Five had, good, had their lamps burning, five and what have you. What's that a reference to? In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 28, in reference to the, to the rapture at the end of the tribulation, he says this, So Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. Unto them that look for him. What if you're not looking? In the parable of the ten virgins, five of those virgins were looking. They had their lamps ready. And five stopped looking. Who's going to go up in the rapture? The ones that are looking. What's going to happen to the other ones? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. But they're going to miss that part of it. Um, now, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 4, he says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And so notice again, he says, a few names. So prophetically, uh, in the Middle Ages, you had the Anabaptists, the Waldensians, the Albigensians, the Lollards, the Polyseans, etc. You had great preachers in that period by the name of Millets, Peter Waldo, Conrad, John Toller, Matthias of Jano, uh, Tyndale, Wycliffe, Huss, Savonarola, Luther, uh, John Collet, William Rubrick, Andrew of uh, Perugia, uh, Vincent Farrar, 
George Candinus, Robert Junius, David Givius. These were some of the men that, you know, you may not have heard of many of them. Uh, these were guys that would preach on the streets in Germany, Switzerland, France, and Spain, and over Europe, and they would expose the public to the heresies of the Catholic Church. I've told you before, they had it pretty simple as far as their message is concerned. They had two points. Here's what's wrong with the Catholic Church. Here's how the Bible says to get to heaven and how we should live. That were the, primarily the two points. And that went over well with the common people because the common people knew that there's something that wasn't right about, you know, what's going on there in Rome and what's going on, you know, in the, in the church and all that stuff. Uh, the common people sensed it. Uh, they didn't have a Bible. They couldn't look in their Bible and see what was wrong. But then these street preachers would show up and they would have copies of manuscripts. I mentioned again Sunday, the Waldensians had the, the old Atala manuscript. Uh, they would copy it and recopy it. They would hide it in their coats and take it out and give it to people. Uh, the Albigensians had the French uh, translation of the, of the old Latin. So, yeah, these people had Bibles. They would copy them and try to get them out to the people. Uh, so they go out and they preach, and they let them know there's some problems with the Catholic Church. So what is going on with the Catholic Church? Well, the Catholic Church basically was the Roman Empire. And political Rome ends up kind of being spiritual Rome and political Rome. But there was a natural division within the empire. From Italy west, we're talking France, Spain, Portugal, England, you have the Latin church. But from east of Italy, you have Greece, you have Turkey, which was Asia Minor, where all these churches are located. You have the Middle East. You have Syria, even as far as India. There, that's a Greek culture. So from early on, you've got an, a Latin culture and a Greek culture, and they don't agree. They don't get along. And they try to do everything they can to keep this thing together. The guy in Rome says, I'm the, I'm the main dude. Uh, at first they called himself the, the universal bishop. Later he's just called the pope. He said, I'm the main dude. I, says, I say what goes on. Now in the east, they didn't really believe in a pope. They had uh, patriarchs. And uh, they had four or five patriarchs. But they'd have a chief patriarch who did not believe he, had, he was a pope. They didn't believe <laughs> They didn't believe in the infallibility of the Pope. Now think about that. Half of the Catholic Church says the Pope is infallible. He came from Peter. He's, you know, he's, he's the, the main dude. And the other half says, I'm not sure we believe that. There were rifts. You got the Roman, and the Western was the Roman Catholic. The Eastern was the Greek Orthodox. Now if you look at them, you say, okay, they're Catholic. You look at both of them. I've seen the Greek Orthodox in Greece. You know, you look at them and say, okay, yeah, they look Catholic, you know. Uh, not too much of a difference appearance-wise. But you've got these guys over here that have idols in their churches. They did, did that again to please the pagans. But over here they don't have idols. They have pictures. And I remember talking to a Greek Orthodox guy one time. We were preaching somewhere. And uh, I started talking about idols. And he said, oh, we don't have, we have icons. Icons are pictures. We don't. We don't believe. We think idols are. It's a sin to have idols in your church, so they just had pictures. 
Okay, that's some of the difference there. They try to get along, they try to work this thing out, uh, but even in the 6th century, the idea of the, uh, of the bishop, and, and <laughs> Pope Gregory I, in dealing with the issues of who the bishop was, wrote that whoever claims for himself the title of universal priest is a forerunner of Antichrist. He made that statement in a letter uh, in which he denounced the claims of the patriarch of Constantinople, that was the Eastern Orthodox, at the time, who said he was a universal bishop. Now, he's not claiming to be infallible, papal infallible, he just says, I'm, I'm the main dude here over here. I'm, I'm a universal bishop. I'm the universal bishop. This guy, over here, this guy over here in Rome said, no, no, I'm the universal bishop. And if I'm the universal bishop, you're the Antichrist. And he said, no, you're the Antichrist. <laughs> and so this is the mentality that's going on until you get about to the year 1054. And 1054, one of, the, one of them decides to excommunicate the other one. You're excommunicated from the church. And so we have a split. And you have one guy over here calling the guy over here an Antichrist. This guy calling the guy over here, the guy over here, an Antichrist. So you got that going on. But it doesn't end there. And, you know, this, you can't make this stuff up. In 1378, in the West, in the Roman Catholic Church, there is a schism, I believe is the way you say it. Schism or schism. Uh, there's a breakdown of relations between Pope Urban VI and the cardinals who elected him. And they soon regretted their decision. So what they did next uh, gave rise to what is known as the Great or the Western Schism, which lasted 92 years in the Church of Rome. Even though Urban was still reigning, the same body of cardinals that elected him decided, you know, we need to elect another pope. So they elected a rival pope who took the name of Clement VII on September 20th of the same year. And this started a line of popes who reigned in Avignon, France. And the second election of the Pope really threw the church into turmoil. So here you have the Western Church. The Cardinals, which are the ones who elect the Pope, they elect this guy. And after a while, they think, boy, that was a mistake. And so they get together and elect another guy and move to Avignon, France. And they start it there. So, and you know what this guy says about this guy? He's Antichrist. And this guy says about this guy, he's the Antichrist. At one time, you have three popes all accusing each other of being Antichrist. Now, how does that work with your papal infallibility? Are people that stupid to say, you know, I believe the popes, whatever the pope says is right. In that day and age, which one was it? I mean, just, and the people know what's going on. They know what's going on. So, uh, in 1378, in the Western Church, you got the two rival popes, John Wycliffe agreed with the Catholic Church. He said, I agree with you guys. Both of you are Antichrist. <laughs> he stated the schism, quote, the schism with all the strife and corruption which it caused prepared the way for the Reformation by enabling the people to see what the papacy really was. There's the light in the darkness. He said, oh, we don't know what this is so terrible. No, oh, no, it wasn't bad at all for the Reformers. Because again, that's point one of their message. 
Look at what's going on in this church, this thing that's called a church. Look at what's going on, how ludicrous that is. Let me show you from the Bible what Jesus said. He wrote a tract called On the Schisms of the Popes. And he called upon the people to consider whether these two priests were not speaking the truth and condemning each other as the Antichrist. He said the fiend no longer reigns in one but in two. <laughs> both of them are devil-possessed. Uh, that men may more easily, uh, in Christ's name, overcome them both. So he, he wrote the track and he said, you know, this, this ought to open everybody's eyes of the heresy and the error and the ludicrousness of this thing called the Roman Catholic Church come to Christ today. And that's what caused people to begin to come to Jesus Christ. That's why the Catholic Church in the turmoil says there's one thing we can do, and that's kill these Protestants, kill these Bible believers. Um, now, along with all of that, you've got that going on in the West. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, you have another factor. You've got the Muslims invading from the South. And the Muslims will come up and they will take all of North Africa and they will take almost all of Spain and they will take the Middle East and almost all of Turkey, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor. When they came up, they took Jerusalem. They also took, there were four headquarters for the church. Antioch was still in existence. They took that. Alexandria was still in existence. They took that. That's good. Rome was the other headquarters. And Constantinople was the newest and the biggest of the Catholic Church. So Muslim hordes are invading from the south. Popes are accusing each other of being antichrist. It's a field day for the reformers. It's a field day, man. When you got it that when it's that obvious, they went out and they said, "You see what's going on here? You think God's in that? Let me show you what God is in." So that's really the thing that brought about the Reformation. Um, what Luther did, now they try, all try to say, you know, Luther began the Reformation. No, he did not begin the Reformation. It's going on long before Luther. 1517, October 31st, he nails 95 theses on the Wittenberg door of his complaints against the Catholic Church. So what's the, who was Luther? He was a very prominent priest at the time. He's a prominent Roman Catholic priest who goes to the door of the church at Wittenberg and nails 95 theses. He said, here's 95 things I think are wrong in the Catholic Church. And what Luther did was the explosion of all this other stuff that had been going on. When Luther did that, I mean, things just, it hit the fan. And that's what really moved the Reformation into full gear. All right, Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5. We'll get more on that in a little bit. Uh, he that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So, again, for the church, we've already overcome. So this is definitely a tribulation reference. Doctrinally, this is to the tribulation. We have overcome, 1 John 4, 4. We have overcome them, 1 John 5, 4. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, 1 John 5, 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. So we have overcome. 
So this is a reference to uh, the tribulation saints. And he talks about the white raiment. Uh, white raiment in the day. And, and, and when Sardis uh, uh, was in existence historically, uh, that was the symbol of official honor. If somebody's walking around the town and they've got the white raiment on, uh, that's special. That, that person is a, a, some kind of honor has been bestowed upon that person. So the Lord says, I'll do that for you. You're going to have white raiment. Revelation chapter 9, verse 8, speaking about the bride. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. And then in verse 5, he also says, I will not blot his name out of the book of life. And the interesting thing there is uh, even in Exodus, Exodus chapter 32, and Moses and God are, are dealing or talking about the, the state of the children of Israel. Uh, and he says this, uh, Moses says this, yet now I will not forgive, if thou wilt forgive their sin, Moses told the Lord, if thou wilt forget, forgive their sin, <clears throat> then there's a pause. Thinking, I don't know if he's going to forgive their sin or not. If thou wilt forgive their sin. And he pauses and he thinks. Then he says this, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, out of thy book. Anybody else remember somebody else that said the same thing for the children of Israel? Kind of. Anybody else? Pardon me? Paul. Absolutely right. Paul basically said, I'll go to hell if it means the salvation of Israel. Whew. He said that under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Moses said, if you don't want to forgive him, I'll tell you what, blot me out. Verse 33, the Lord said unto Moses, whosoever has sinned against me, him will I blot out of my book. Moses, I ain't blotting you out because of them. If they sin, I'm going to blot them out of the book. And Revelation 20 and verse 15 says, Whosoever is not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. That's the book we're talking about. The moral of that story is this. God doesn't have an empty book, and when you get saved, he puts your name in it. He starts out with every name in the book. And if you die without Jesus Christ, he blots your name out. That's how that works. And again, that's just the Lord being positive. You know, he said, I got your name in the book. Please, please give me a reason to keep it in there. And so many have given him a reason not to. And I think we will end with that for tonight. Any questions, any comments? You know, if you study church history sometime, you, you get it, find a good church historian that really goes through uh, what was going on in the Catholic Church is absolutely obscene. You've got some of these popes that are committing adultery. You've got one pope that they find out is a woman. And, you're wondering, and you, you look at all of that in light of the doctrine of papal infallibility. And how do you justify those two? So, anyway, any questions, comments? All right. Let's uh, have a good week. If you're going to go with me tomorrow night to Glendale, I'm going to leave here probably 545. Uh, we can caravan over there if you'd like. Uh, Saturday, we will be hanging bags on doors, meeting at the outreach room at 9 o'clock. All right? Invite somebody to church Sunday. Father, we thank you for your grace. Lord, we, we look at the mess, Lord. We something so beautiful and so pure as your word and your church and your way of salvation, the simplicity of that, and what evil and wicked men can do to that 
that beauty. It's just it's phenomenal. Lord, we thank you for salvation. We thank you for Jesus Christ. Lord, we look forward to the day when we don't have all this stuff. We look forward to the day when we can just hang around in heaven. Lord, thank you again. Lord, bless our people. Pray for Elizabeth that she has the baby without any complications. Pray for the others in the prayer request. Lord, you've heard them. And thank you again for being our God. In Christ's name, amen. All right, you are all dismissed.